second Bible reading picks up straight from where the last one left off, John 6, 41 to 53. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I neglected to introduce myself a few minutes earlier and for those who are joining us online, but my name's John Thorpe. I'm the minister here at church, and particularly if you're joining us for the first time, uh, it's great to have you with us, whether it's in person or online. Uh, for those who have been joining us uh, across the last couple of weeks, you will have noticed that we've just skipped chapter five. And uh, as we've worked through this uh, series, uh, we have also, we've missed all sorts of detail along the way. And really, that's part of a choice that we've made, that in the end, we've chosen to do this series over six months rather than you know, 12 months or 24 months. And that means that inevitably, uh, we do lose some of that detail. So our goal has been to make sure that we focus on a good amount of the book and hopefully capture all the key themes of the Gospel of John, but at the same time, not cover it so broadly that it ends up being all a bit vague. So by the end of it, you'll have a good picture of the book and hopefully, God willing, uh, a good picture of a lot of the detail. That's certainly been our goal. So let me pray uh, that we might understand some of the detail in this passage now. Dear Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that we might have ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, and hearts to respond. Amen. I really like bread. Uh, bread is my staple breakfast. So coffee and bread every morning at about 6am. Uh, I really like fresh white bread with Vegemite. Okay, if you saw that picture of Tom Hanks, not that much Vegemite. But you know, just a nice smearing of Vegemite is good. And when it comes to a steak sandwich, I love Turkish bread uh, with just a little bit of oil drizzled on it and then sort of toasted on the barbecue. But for me, Bread is not a matter of life and death. And if I run out of bread, well, that's okay. There's 101 other foods I can choose from to sustain me. Uh, but for many people around the world, uh, bread isn't just sort of part of a well-balanced you know, food pyramid diet. 
you know, for them, flour, water, salt and a bit of oil are basic units of survival along with clean drinking water. And so today as we look at this passage, and as Jesus talks about this metaphor of him being this bread of life, we're not talking about sort of a nice optional extra, you know, something to go with the rest of the meal. Uh, we're talking about our absolute fundamental, most basic needs for survival uh, as we exist in God's world. So to provide some context for our passage, uh, last week Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he heads back to Galilee. And on the way, uh, he stops at this well and he meets this woman and he offers her this living water that will abundantly overflow and well up to eternal life. Uh, Then in chapter 5, he returns to Jerusalem where he heals a man who has been a cripple for 38 years. And we're going to revisit that chapter next week. And now, once again, he's returned to Galilee. Uh, And as he moves around Galilee and heals the sick, more and more people start to recognise that Jesus is really someone. Uh, Here is a man of God who can lead the people and potentially make their life a whole lot better. And so they follow Jesus to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. So to get some perspective here, uh, we're talking right up the top of, you know, what what is Israel? uh, And on the far side, we are talking the middle of nowhere at this point, okay? And so these people are following Jesus and there's at least 5,000 men and perhaps other unaccompanied people. So perhaps up to 10,000 people are out there in the middle of nowhere listening to Jesus to see what he has to say and what he's going to do next. And when Jesus sees this crowd, he has compassion on them. You know, they don't have any food, but they, they, they discover this boy who's got five little barley loaves. They're kind of like dinner loaves and a few perhaps pickled fish. And he takes this tiny amount of food and goes to feed the entire crowd. And all of this is confirming what they already believe about this man, that Jesus is going to be their man. He is the man who is going to provide for them and make their life better. And Jesus can see the mood of the crowd and he knows what they are thinking. So verse 15, Jesus knows that they intended to come and make him king by force. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So he diffuses the situation by then going off by himself alone. And that night, the disciples uh, get in a boat and they leave for Capernaum without him. And so they're travelling across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, But then we read how Jesus miraculously catches up to them. And when they see him walking on water, you know, surprisingly, uh, they are fearful. And it's funny in this account, John doesn't make a whole big deal about this whole event that Jesus is walking on water. Uh, But this is just part of of these things that are going on. You know, it's dark, it's blowing a gale, the sea's all churned up. And here's, you know, Jesus out for an evening stroll. Uh, And he gets, you know, in the boat and then almost immediately or immediately they arrive at Capernaum. But their relief from the crowd is very brief because they arrive in Capernaum and, and sure enough, the crowd discover that Jesus has gone and they follow him back there. 
and now they've got questions. And that's where we pick up the story today. Because they ask him, when did you get here? Uh, but Jesus is you know, less interested in the when and the how and more interested in why they are so keen to know. So Jesus answers, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You know, in literal terms, they've seen the sign, uh, they ate the sign, uh, but they just didn't see where the sign was pointing. You know, they see Jesus, who's the one who's going to improve their lot in life, and they've already started to imagine what it would be like to have this guy as king. But right now, uh, Jesus is the one who is giving them food. And if you are poor and in the middle of nowhere, uh, that counts for a lot. Uh, but there's a certain sort of short-sightedness to their thinking. You know, they're thinking about their immediate material needs, uh, but not a lot about the long game. You know, it's a bit like uh, the story of the two young men. They're about to enter university and they're, they're sitting on the wall chatting. And one turns to the other and he says, so, you know, what are you hoping for in life? And the guy goes, well, you know, we're starting uni, I'm hoping to become a doctor and then, you know, perhaps own my own practice. And the guy says, and what then? He goes, well, I suppose, you know, get married, uh, you know, buy a house with my wife, that'd be nice. And he goes, and what then? And he's starting to get, you know, a little bit frustrated. Well, I don't know, I suppose we'll, you know, have some kids and, you know, I'd, I'd love a, a, a dog. We'll call him Trevor, you know. And the guy goes, and then what then? He goes, oh, I don't, you know, I suppose we'll retire and, and travel and, you know, I'll, I'll buy myself a, a camper trailer, we'll go around Australia. You know, and he goes, and then what then? I said, well, I don't know, I suppose I'm just going to drop dead and die. And the guy goes, and what then? Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, even though Jesus is talking about this food and eternal life, their brain is still in you know, physical bread, literal food. And so they're trying to work out, you know, how do we get this food? You know, verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? You know, they want something from God and they're trying to work out how do we get it? How do we win God's favour? Uh, which, to be fair, is, is how most of life works, isn't it? You know, if you are a good worker, uh, then you get the praise, uh, you get more shifts, you get the promotion. And so we kind of figure it should be the same with God, that there's this kind of reciprocal arrangement. And certainly as Christians, we sort of buy into that. At very least, if I'm going to be a Christian, you know, and I'm, I'm going to say I'm a follower of Jesus and make all sorts of sacrifices, then God should make my life comfortable. And I think we find it incredibly confronting when life becomes uncomfortable. And so often we feel let down by God. How could God let this happen to me? I'm committed to church, I serve, I teach SRE. You haven't even seen my kindy class, which I teach. You know, we think we've done all of these good things to deserve God's blessing and comfort. And then perhaps we think to ourselves of all the things where we've shown self-control. You know, I don't get drunk, I don't look at pornography. You know, surely God, that should you know, add up to God giving me good things. And so we think to ourselves, if I do good and I don't do bad, then I deserve good. 
What we don't often recognise in that thinking is that life is bigger than the present. Uh, God is not going to exempt us from the brokenness of this world. Uh, We can certainly avoid some pain by making godly decisions uh, rather than ungodly decisions. Our life will be more peaceful if we try to be a peacemaker. But we will still sin. Others will still sin against us. And Christians will get cancer just as much as anyone else. What God does promise, however, is to secure our future. Uh, And that is the bigger picture. Now, we think the main game is is the present, and heaven is kind of like the consolation prize. You know, we're going to hang on to this life for all it's worth, kicking and screaming, and if we have to go, then we're we're kind of glad that we're going to something half-decent. But that's not God's perspective. Uh, God's perspective is actually, if this is the broken version of his reality, then imagine the unbroken version. And what we do now actually has a lot to do and more to do with the future plans he has for us. So our perspective is often too small. But at the same time, that sort of of transactional thinking completely misses the point of how God wants to relate to his creation. You know, trying to secure God's favour by doing good is kind of like trying to buy a TV with cabbages. You know, it's just the wrong currency for the job. And just by offering more cabbages doesn't get you the TV. Uh, What God wants from his creation is a relationship with his people. So verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So Jesus takes this language of work and turns it completely upside down. And the starting point to receiving God's blessing isn't doing. It's not about a particular religious observance. It's not even about good moral values. It's about believing in the one who God has sent. Now, the word belief is the same as the word faith. So it's not just sort of an abstract cognitive sort of confidence that God exists. It's a commitment and a trust and a dependence and a willingness to submit to his rightful authority. And as we will see, that type of commitment and dependence is all-consuming. And at the found, on that foundation, we see everything else. So out of that comes obedience. Out of that comes, comes a change in the way that we live and talk and think. But it starts in relational terms, not transactional terms. So if the right response to God is believing in the one who is sent, then the crowd wants some proof. Uh, that Jesus really is the one. So verse 30, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So there's appreciation for you. Uh, Jesus has just fed this massive crowd in the middle of the wilderness, you know, out of next to nothing in the middle of nowhere. And now they're asking for a sign. Uh, But what they're really asking is is for something greater than Moses. Okay, so Moses provided manna from heaven every day for like 40 years. And so they're saying, are you greater than Moses? Because Moses is pretty impressive. 
And Jesus gives the crowd a little bit of a rebuke because he goes, God the Father is the one who gave you that manna, not Moses. And God the Father is the one who is now going to provide a bread that will not just satisfy for a day or a week or a year, but the true bread from heaven that will restore life. You know, they want Jesus to give them a sign and Jesus is saying, actually, I am the sign. So verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, last week, Jesus offered to satisfy this Samaritan woman, to satisfy her thirst. And we got a little bit of a picture of, of where she'd been looking for satisfaction. She'd had five husbands and the bloke she's with at the moment isn't her husband. Uh, for this crowd, we, we don't really know where they've been looking uh, for satisfaction. But we know that Jesus has the answer. And he's got the answer for us to those big questions of life, those questions like, who am I? Uh, why am I here? What is my purpose? How should I live? And where am I going? You know, right now in our cultural context, everyone is encouraged to look inward for answers. You know, life is all about being true to yourself. You are perfect just the way you are and you shouldn't change a thing. You would think all of that sort of affirmation and optimism would leave us feeling pretty self-satisfied, you know, pretty confident about life and pretty content. Uh, but on a society level, that's not what we're seeing, is it? Uh, we're seeing a society that's struggling to work out who they are and where they fit. And the answer is usually that you just haven't looked deep enough. you just got to keep looking inward and find that even truer self. And I suspect the more we look at ourselves, the more we see our truer selves, actually, the more we realise that we're pretty broken, fragile people. But right now, Jesus puts an offer on the table. But tragically, the crowd just isn't seeing it. So verse 36, you have seen me and still you do not believe. And this is where we discover that even working the works of believing is dependent on God's grace. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So God the Father is the one who chooses, then he, cho then he chooses who he chooses, will inevitably come and they will recognise the lordship of Jesus. Jesus will accept them and he will not let them go. So from our perspective, uh, we are making choices. Uh, we feel in control. When you woke up this morning, you chose what you ate for breakfast. Uh, we feel in control. But behind the scenes, we can see that God is working and that God continues to be sovereign. Uh, but it does raise some questions for us, doesn't it, about God's fairness. You know, why does one person get picked for the team and not someone else? Uh, and the Bible doesn't give us a neat, convenient answer to that question. Probably the closest we get is, if God is the one who's in control and God is the creator, then God gets to choose how he deals with his creation. I think for many people, we prefer the idea of God providing free will, where we all have the power to choose for ourselves. And therefore, we're responsible for our own fate. And that sort of rationale is kind of convenient. It upholds the justice of God, and it also upholds our freedom, and we like our freedom. 
But it doesn't make life any easier. It simply means that those who are going to be saved are those who are most capable of recognising, those most capable of doing the right thing. And so we've just moved being saved away from grace, where it's an even playing field for everyone before God, to merit, where only those who are good enough will ever make it. You know, we might not have a neat and convenient picture of how God's grace and mercy works with our responsibility. But from our perspective, we need to treat it as if we are in control. And so we need to take responsibility when we are called to repent and believe, then we need to make that choice. We need to make choices about how we will respond in any given situation. Uh, We can respond with godliness and kindness and compassion and mercy and grace, uh, or we can choose to sin. But in all of that choosing, as Christians, we recognise we need God's help. That God is the one who's going to guide us and help us through his spirit to choose the right things and to say no to the wrong things. But it's, and it starts with how we respond to Jesus. So verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you for the life of the world. And then a few verses later, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You know, it's pretty graphic imagery, isn't it? Yeah, if you just read it in isolation, it would actually be quite disturbing. Uh, But the language of eating flesh and blood captures this sense of complete dependence. Uh, You need this to survive. Uh, But it also captures something precious and deeply personal. That something is so loved that you can't live without it, that you need it with you and in you. You Anyone read the book Where the Wild Things Are? Uh, You've read it to your children. There's a line in it, I'll eat you up, I love you so. And I think when we get that picture, you get what Jesus is talking about here. That there is a love and a joy and a compassion. I think in human relationship terms, the closest parallel is perhaps marriage, where Jesus says, and the two will become one flesh. But this language of flesh and blood also points us to what Jesus will do. Uh, His body will be broken, his blood will be shed, and he will die on the cross for us a life for a life. And so when we say we need to eat his flesh, what we're really saying is we need to embrace Jesus for everything he has done for us. And we want to embrace him as our saviour and Lord. And we want to embrace him because he loves us and because we love him for it. Now, in a moment, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper. We didn't plan this. Uh, It's just uh, wonderful timing. Uh, This passage is not about the Lord's Supper, but it does tell us what the Lord's Supper is about. It helps us understand what we are doing together. It is metaphoric, it is symbolic, but it reflects a reality that should be going on for us and what God has done for us. It's about the events of the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, but it's also about our response. 
We eat and we drink because we recognise our need and we want to declare our devotion. Uh, He is the one who saves. He is the one who satisfies. And ultimately, he is the one who will secure our eternity. And praise God for that. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you love us uh, and that even though we are sinners and thoroughly unlovable, uh, that you stood in our place and you paid the price for our sin. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit we might know that and live it uh, deeply in our lives. Amen.